This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network and wherever you uh, go for your podcast needs. Uh, and remember, for all of you wagering needs, it's Bet Rivers in New York and New Jersey. Play Sugar House in Connecticut. As we put the uh, football season to bed, one final bit of business here. A little Super Bowl retrospective. And then Mike Pereira on the officiating, which has gotten so much attention. So that will uh, we'll make the turn to baseball uh, tomorrow. We'll have a lot of football stuff coming up, including whether Aaron Rodgers winds up with the Jets, which will be fascinating to watch. Uh, where Carr winds up as an example. Still a couple of... Uh, Coaches to be named, although we got a good idea where that, who's going where now. Um, but let's begin with the emails. Mike, for instance, a podcast at gmail.com is where you send your emails so that they hit this show. Patrick starts us off. I know you're a big fan of Andy Reid. I was very happy to see him win his second Super Bowl. Great coach. Now an all-time coach. Landry, Lombardi, Belichick. Uh, and he might not be done. No question. Andy's now the fifth winningest coach of all time. He's only a couple of wins to get past Landry. He'll pass him next year. He's the second winningest coach in postseason history. Now there's more postseason games, so he and Belichick have the most wins in the postseason. He's won two Super Bowls and put on a brilliant offensive display in the second half. The adjustments they made, I think they got a big edge with the field. I think the Eagles had a big problem with the field and it hurt their pass rush a lot, just like the snow hurt the pass rush for the Bills in their game. Uh, I think this game especially, it really negated it. Reddick said it was the worst field he ever stepped on in his life. I don't know what was wrong with the field. Uh, it's something the NFL should be very embarrassed about, and I'm sure they are. The field was not up to a standard for a, a Pop Warner game, no less the Super Bowl. Um, but... In the second half, they put on a display that was almost perfect. They were 4-4 four for four in the red zone. Uh, they were as efficient as a team could be. The motion that Andy used destroyed uh, the Eagle defense. The Eagle defense was off stride the entire time. Andy went to the running game, which we have talked about, which has been a Achilles heel for him. He has been want to go to the running game in big games. He has always stuck to the past. He went to the running game here. It made a huge difference. Uh, and the punt return was an enormous play in the game. I mean, let's be honest. The Chiefs don't win the game without the fumble recovery for a touchdown and the punt return. That's 14 points in a very tight game. You know, and their defense did a better job in the second half, but their offense had the ball a lot in the second half. That was another big thing. The Chiefs scored, uh, the Eagles scored 11 points, but the Chiefs scored 20, but the Chiefs scored 24 points. You know, that was, uh, you know, just way too many points, you know, in the second half. And when you, you know, have that kind of game and you have score them 24-11 in the second half, it's enough. I mean, it wasn't like the Eagles didn't do things well. They did things really well. They had a lot of yardage for the game. They scored 35 points. 
Kansas City got seven on a punt return and seven on defense. That gave them 24. That was enough to make a difference. They got all, they got uh, 24 points in the second half and dominated in the fourth quarter, which is what they've done in both their Super Bowl wins. They've come from behind. And Mahomes has come from behind 10 points in four different playoff games. That's, that's impressive. They're very good at coming from behind, and the play calling was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wide open guys everywhere. Um, and they executed almost every play. Um, let me get to the uh, rest of these emails. And then remember Mike Perara coming up. And we have some stuff to talk about with him. What are your thoughts on the quarterback sneak where everyone is allowed to push the quarterback forward? The players become unstoppable. It has. And it's now legal. I don't like the play, but I don't know how you're going to stop it. You're going to legislate against them pushing these quarterbacks forward on the. So you got the interior linemen go low, as low as they go, low and hard. The quarterback comes in behind them, and then he's got two guys pushing him forward. There's no way he's not going to get a yard. There's, there's no way. And you're right, it's become an unstoppable play, and that's why you're going to see more and more of it on fourth down. Uh, is Mahomes now a first ballot Hall of Famer and a top five quarterback? Well, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't think there's any question. You know, what he's done in five years, he's won a couple of MVPs. He's won uh, two Super Bowls. He's been to three Super Bowls. I mean, so he's dominated. His one-loss record's brilliant. Uh, they've been the showcase team now for five seasons. Uh, and they're not done. Now, I don't know how many more Super Bowls he's going to get to. You just don't know. You just don't know. He might get to five more. He might get to no more. I just, you just have no way of knowing. And, I mean, look at this year. It took a lot for them to win this Super Bowl. They, they, and they were down in games. They also got two flags that determined the last two games in very, very tight games. Todd and Stratford. Um, for the multi-million dollar machine that is the NFL, they're in their crown jewel game with millions and millions watching to have the network show you 50 people replacing divots on the playing surface uh, like it was a random polo contest on the outskirts of Florida was another disgrace. Well, you put it well. Um, the NFL spends a fortune on this game. They make more. I mean, they make so much money on the game that it's, it's almost incalculable. And when you put it in the grand scheme of things, they have a license to print money. And they spend a lot of it on their showcase game. But all they keep trying to do is make it an event and make it and worry less and less about the football game. They should worry more about the football product and less about all the other ancillary nonsense and secondary and tertiary things that they worry about. I'm not saying that they don't have a halftime show. I understand why they have a halftime show. You got a lot of people watching who are not football fans who like the halftime show. Uh, you're charging people exorbitant money. Hey, the best price ticket now in that stadium is $5,000. It might even have been more. That was the top ticket two years ago. I'm not talking about luxury boxes. I'm talking about regular seat, $5,000. The cheapest seat was like 1000 I don't know if it's gone up. I haven't gone to the last two Super Bowls. Um I'm thinking of going next year in Vegas because I just want to see this whole thing unfold in Vegas. I never thought I would in my lifetime. So I'm thinking of going. I'm very much thinking of going. Um, I'm sure by then the top ticket will be 7000 
uh, maybe 10,000, who knows. The bottom line is they spend a fortune on everything. And evidently, they had to really spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of scientific effort on screwing up this field. Because this was in the works for years, as I told you, this Tacoma 31 sod that was developed with the USGA and with some scientists at Oklahoma State. And remember, that stadium sends out a tray, bakes the field in the sun, and then slides the tray back in. That's how the field is worked on. That's a real field. And it goes out in the sun, and then it comes back in. Now, what they did wrong, I'm not sure. But for them to spend the amount of money, and I don't know how much they spent on this research, it was years in the making. So you got to figure they spent millions of dollars to put forth what most players called the worst field they have ever stepped on. And something as fundamental as the playing surface, that game, as somebody said to me, the other day, that game would have been better off for the Eagles, especially if it was played at Soldier Field in below zero temperature with the wind blowing, it would have been a better field for them to play on. And you know what? It would have been. They would have had a better feel for the field under those conditions, zero degrees in Chicago, than they would have in Arizona where they went so that they have perfect playing conditions and they had the worst playing conditions we've seen in a game in years. For this, the NFL, and the NFL walks away, doesn't even apologize for the field or anything else. The field, I'm sure somebody heard about it or somebody lost their job, but the bottom line is this was an utter disgrace for the NFL to have that kind of playing surface for their Super Bowl. I mean, worry about what's important here. Now, Cincinnati, I mean, Kansas City slipped. But they did very little shuffling of their shoes. The Eagles were basically in the shoe department the entire game, trying to find levels. Remember, they're changing the lengths. When they're changing their shoes, they're changing the length of the cleats on the bottom of their shoe, the what's on the bottom of their shoe can go from being very small to very large based on what they feel they need to get a feel of that, a grab of that field. So either the Chiefs went and did a better job of paying attention to the surface beforehand, which is why you're supposed to go out there two hours early, is to go out there and make sure that you feel comfortable with the field as a player. And that you have the right equipment on. That's the idea. Not to go out there and, you know, mug for the cameras or go out there and hug people. The idea is to go out there and get ready to play the game. And to make sure you're in the right equipment. You saw the bin for the Eagles shoes was countless times larger than the Kansas City one. So they were in complete chaos with their shoes the entire game. And they had players after the game who called it the worst surface they had ever played on in their life, including Reddick, who was the premier pass rusher who said it was the worst field he ever stepped on in his life. 
Was it a factor? Yes. How big a factor? I don't know. I can't. We can't tell. But the team that has seventy-two sacks had none. Now here's the one thing: if you take the number of pressures that they had in the game and took that and then formulated what's a normal number of sacks. They should have had three or four, and they wound up with none. Now, you got two things. Either they were overly aggressive and Mahomes got away, and a couple times he did, or Mahomes just did such a brilliant job of either getting rid of the ball or getting away, which he did a couple of times from Reddick especially, and turning it into positives or getting the ball off because they got no sacks on a percentage of pressures that should have yielded them somewhere between 3.2 and 3.5 sacks from what I understand. And it didn't. Give Mahomes credit, give the offensive line credit, and maybe take some shots at the great linemen from uh, the Eagles who had a rough day. Let's be honest. I thought the biggest thing Kansas City had to deal with in that game was the pass rush. It was negated. It was not the problem. Now, the Eagle offense, they had a big problem with. And let me tell you this, and I firmly believe this, and it's just me and the game I was watching. If, if Hertz had not fumbled that ball, and he really just lost the ball, and then he slipped and he couldn't get back to the ball. And the ball was scooped up so it wasn't just picked up for a recovery. It was scooped up for a touchdown by Bolton. We know that. If that play had not happened when it did, I believe the game was on its way to being a route. I'm sure Kansas City would have scored some touchdowns in the second half to maybe make it closer, but I don't think they would have been close enough to win. If I take two plays and turn them around in the first half, if I, and they're not crazy plays, if I take, remember, on third and one, on second short, they didn't get the first down. On third and one, they got a penalty, and now it's third and six. And when they went to run the ball on third and six, he lost the ball, and it went for the touchdown. They had a second and one and didn't make it. The only short yard of one, and I think they fell on in the game. Then on third and one, they got a penalty, which got us to third and six, and then they lost the ball for the touchdown. If you take that play away and credit the Devontae Smith catch before the half, which was ruled a catch and then overturned after some crazy stuff that went on was overturned, including a play that they ran, which was negated because they thought they were given an unfair advantage and the Eagle and the Chiefs weren't given a chance to substitute. After all that, Andy then challenged and then won the challenge. And I never saw video evidence that overturned it. I'm not saying it wasn't a fumble. I mean, it wasn't an incomplete pass, but I never saw evidence that turned the play over. If you take those two plays and say no turnover there and a catch there, that game is 
is a route at the half. You're looking at a game that could have easily been 28 to 7 at the half. So Kansas City was playing with fire. They gave up they gave up almost 300 yards of offense in the first half. Their offense played brilliantly in the second half and their defense did enough. And then the Eagles weren't able to get the ball back the way the end of the game went. They never saw the ball in the last five minutes because of the penalty. But that game in the first half had a chance to be blown completely out of proportion. Mike, how much do you think Mahomes benefited from sitting a year behind Alex Smith as opposed to the usual where rookie QBs start right from the start? I'm, I'm sure he gained some. But I think the bigger things were the fact that, first of all, take it from the start. Mahomes was not a big name in college. When he was drafted that high, it was a big surprise. Andy knew who he wanted. He went and got him. So Andy first uncovered him. And look at the players that Andy uncovers. Sky Moore, Pacheco. Look what, a, look what Pacheco became this year and what a force he became. 75 yards rushing in the Super Bowl. You know, five, five games left in the season. He wasn't even a big player for the Chiefs. 75 yards. Trading for Tony. Tony gets a punt return and a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Sky Moore gets a touchdown in the Super Bowl. They brought Schuster in. They let Tyreek Hill leave. What they made McKinnon if they lost their top back. I mean, they do a great job with personnel. So Mahomes is, was brought to the right coach who then built a system that works for him. Their imagination and their orchestration in the red zone is utterly brilliant. It has to do with Mahomes' vision and his ball handling and his escapability, but also it has to do with Andy Reid moving chess pieces around and giving you so many different looks. Look how wide open the two touchdown passes were. Basically, an op- almost a, a, a version of the same play run to the other side on the Sky Moore touchdown. That opened up the Tony touchdown for a walk-in, opened up the Sky Moore touchdown for a walk-in, opened up Pacheco for a walk-in. I mean, the bottom line is these were easy. And McKinnon had another walk-in at the end of the game, but he was smart enough to lie down on the one-yard line so that he didn't score. Well, they would have walked in there. They were letting him score that one. But the bottom line is they executed brilliantly in that game. They had no turnovers. They had very few penalties. If you watch the Chiefs and you know the Chiefs, they have a ton of penalties. They make a ton of mistakes. They have a ton of mistakes all the time, usually turnovers, usually bad plays, usually big pass interference calls. They usually have all that. They had none of that in this game. They allowed no sacks. They gave up no turnovers. They had no big penalties.
That's a clean game for them. They don't usually play clean games. They played a great clean game. And a lot of people I've talked to feel that pound for pound, this might have been the best played Super Bowl of all time. It was close. It was a very well-played game. The Giants-Bill game in Super Bowl twenty-five without a turnover was a brilliantly played game with no turnovers in the game. Superbly played throughout and then wound up on a missed 47-yard field goal. It was a brilliantly played game, though. This was, too. This was a superbly played game. And the offenses had the better of the defenses, no question about it. I mean, the Eagles scored 35 points, and thanks to a punt return and a defensive touchdown, the Chiefs scored 38 points. When we come back, we'll chat with Mike Pereira. You're listening to the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Mike Pereira is the, the dean of the... <laughs> former officials who have become uh, TV stars, and he does it very well, as does uh, Sterator on uh, CBS. And it's a good time to talk to him because nobody knows how to talk officiating and knows all the different nuances of officiating more than Mike Pereira does. Mm-hmm. No, nobody. He's the best at it. He brings it. Uh, he is very good at bringing that to the audience. Uh, in a clear, concise way, and he does a terrific job. Mike, welcome. How are you? Mike, I am great. It's good to be uh, talking to you again. All right. So listen, a couple of things, Mike, let's get to, because officiating with all the gambling now, officiating has moved to even, if it could, even a more scrutinized place. And now after every game, especially games that end with flags, the first thing you see on Twitter, NFL rigged, NFL this, NFL that. NFL, and it has really put uh, officiating so much under the gun. And people wait with bated breath to hear you guys talk about, is this going to be reviewed? Is it not going to be reviewed? And sometimes it's hard to tell what made it be reviewed, that kind of thing. And officiating has moved so much to the forefront. First question has it put too much pressure on the guys doing the job? Well, I think it's put a lot of pressure on them. I mean, listen, I mean, they've been used to this pressure, but maybe not to the magnitude of where it is now. I mean, I only think back to to my time on the field, which I know was a long time ago, Mike, but it was in the late 90s. Um, you know, we didn't have this presence of social media, period. So you didn't, you didn't, you didn't read about yourself. You didn't read about all these calls, all these questions. You didn't have sites on the internet called, uh, you know, football zebras um, with continued focus on it. I mean, even if I go back, Mike, to when I was running the officiating program, there were mistakes that were made. And this is early on in my career back in New York. There were mistakes that were made and I'd look at it and say, yeah, that's a mistake, but that's one nobody's going to ever see. Well, that's not the case anymore because, you know, there's so much focus on every single game, whether it is fantasy football, whether it is gambling. I mean, the, the pressure is enormous, but that's the nature of the avocation, um, that pressure that goes along with it. And you, you learn how to handle it. You learn how to react without having that aspect of it in your mind. The game itself, once you get started, Mike, And I think people don't realize this, but, you know, we are all now great slow motion officials, including me. But there are still seven people on the field that are making decisions based on what they see in one twenty sixth of a second of a frame. 
that quickly. So you don't, at that point, think about the pressure. I mean, you don't think about where you live. You don't think about who the player is. You have to react so quickly to something you see so briefly that it's very, very difficult. It's just that while that speed is there, and the speed has gotten quicker, um, but while it's there, you just have to react, and then you have to accept what gets written about it, um, whether it's justified or not. You just have to accept that it goes with the territory, and you have to go forward. Mike, fans have been brought up on the idea that the official is going to swallow his whistle when the game, when the championship is on the line. No penalties in overtime hockey in the Stanley Cups. I remember a Jake O'Donnell or a Richie Power saying, hey, if the game's tied late and it's a championship game, they're going to have to earn it. They're going to have to earn it. We're going to step away. We're going to have to earn it. Fans have heard that forever. The question I have is, if it's 27-17 in October, and, and then it's two minutes left in a tie Super Bowl game, is the same judgment supposed to be used, or is there supposed to be a common sense there that has to elevate the call at that point, or is it the same call? Well, to me, it's the same call, and I've always said that. Look, I was in the department as the head of officials basically for 12 years. And in my 12 years, I never once said, swallow your whistle inside of two minutes. I mean, I think that's outrageously unfair to everyone, including the players. If you swallow your whistle and don't call something because it's inside of two minutes, is that fair to the team that doesn't get the call? Should we have not have called a late pushdown out of bounds when the homes against the uh, Cincinnati at the end of the game, when he got pushed, not hard, but he did get pushed into the ground. But when that guy reaches for that, that official, Mike, does he have time to realize he is sending that team to the, th- th- that game's either going to overtime or that flag is going to send that game. Yeah, he does one team I, to I the, understand. one team to the Super Bowl. Yeah. I understand how you think that, but, that doesn't help fans would think that, but it doesn't happen. You have to react. You know, do we want to have what happened with the saints and the Rams a couple of years ago where you don't call pass interference when it's at the end of the game? I mean, there's a balance here that you have to find. I mean, and I think that's, what's kind of unfair. If you, All right. Well, if let's get to the Bradbury call, which Bradbury said was a penalty, but here's the right. thing. He said, he didn't get flagged for what he thought was a worse offense in the second quarter on the same play. He didn't get flagged, and then he got flagged with the game on the line. Right. And I saw the play in the second quarter, too, which I thought was a foul. But here's, here's what happens. And, again, we talk about this 126th of a second. The difference in the two, to me, is that it opened up to the official at the end of the game. He had the angle where he could see the jersey pull, whereas the one earlier in the second quarter, he didn't have that same angle. And so it's, it's, it's a different type of play. Um, and, and, you know, hey, listen, officiating is tough, and we know one thing's for certain. They're not always right. I mean, they make mistakes. But you can't take, and, and, and if the official doesn't know he makes a mistake until the office tells him, 
you know, a day later, hey, you missed this. But, you know, you 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 try to get everything that you can get if it's clear, if it's clear. And the emphasis that the competition committee took years and years ago, back in my time around 2005, which was a jersey pull is a foul, period. Um, when you're an official and you see the jersey pull, you're going to call it and you're just – you're just not going to not call it because it happens to be in inside of two minutes. My local driver here that takes me back and forth to the airport says, I have an idea. Let's just take off, take the officials off the field at the two minute warning and let the players decide it. It's really nonsensical. I mean, and you, you just have to call what you see. And, and I would say that any official that ever told me that he was going to put a zipper on his pocket and not call anything in the last two minutes, unless it was so obvious to everybody, I'd fire his ass. I mean, that's the last type of mindset that I want to go in to a last two-minute series when the Super Bowl may be on the line. I want fairness. I want fairness. And in all fairness, I think without that hole, I mean, I think that Smith-Schuster really breaks that, beats um, Bradbury, and likely maybe scores a touchdown. So you think maybe that impacted the play to where you think he could have scored? The ball wasn't that far I away. You thought so. he could have scored. now, it's defensive holding is before the pass is thrown. Yep. So throw out the fact of whether it might have been catchable or not. Without that grab of the jersey, without that tug that Bradbury thought maybe he could have gotten away with, um, then I think it was a possibility that uh, – that, uh, you know, Smith Schuster could have caught the ball. So it's just one of those things, Mike. And, you know, it just was so much emphasis on the officiating from championship game weekend, the messiness of it, that it's like you can't officiating can't get out of their own way, even if they're right. And um, but that's kind of been the nature of the postseason this year. It's on with Fox is Mike Pereira, who is the number one guy on officiating has been for a very long time. Mike, in a game like that, how much talk is there on the field among the officials when they notice where it's so noticeable that the players are having a problem with the field from a condition standpoint? They're slipping all over the place. Uh, is, does that get discussed, or is that not even brought up during the game? Not even brought up. I mean, that's that's beyond their, uh, their realm of supervision. So you I wouldn't mean, say, hey, you know, be careful here because bad. these guys are slipping all over the place? No, No talk like that. No talk. No talk. Okay. Um, we want to get these things. Def- let, oh, let me get to the play because the Eagles were, from what I hear, the Eagles did not like the machinations of how Andy got to review the Devonta Smith call. They felt that they were hurt that they didn't. That they felt they were unjustly not allowed to run that play. They felt they they did not dispute whether it was caught or not, and I never saw a clear indication that it was not a catch. But I'm sure there was somewhere for them to overturn it. They did overturn it, so I'll give them that. But they felt that that play before that they ran should not have been stopped. How about that? Well, I mean, there's really two different situations. I mean, you're talking about the catch on the sideline, right? Where the the player was on his feet and actually there was a matchup situation which killed the clock and then allowed Andy to throw the challenge flag on that one, which led to a challenge that he lost, by the way. No, that's the one um, he got right. Yeah, it, it, that's 
No, no, no. The one, the one that was reversed was inside of two minutes. So that was stopped by the replay official. Right, so oh, the Devontae Smith one. But why was the yes, other one not ruled? Why was the other one not? Why was the play stopped? They felt the play should not have been stopped that they ran. Well, again, you know, do we remember the week before? Do we remember the two weeks before with Devonta Smith again? Um, you know, on the catch in the Eagles game, right? They messed up, which which we never saw, so it's, we didn't know that right. the play. You know, we we didn't get a good look at it. We didn't really get a good look at it this time either, because right. we never right. saw. I never saw a replay that showed the ball was on the ground. It was moving, but I don't know if it was out of his arms or not. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, to me, and and I'm I'm the same way. The one thing that the replay official, which was. You know, the New York uh, people were in the replay booth in Glendale. Um, you had your regular replay people. There was a, probably seven or eight people in that booth. But the one thing that they did is they basically waited until the ball was right about to be snapped and then shut the play down. And then to me, Mike, and this is one of my major complaints in the game, four minutes later they decided that the pass was incomplete and they would reverse it. Four yes. minutes. I mean, where are we? On the basic premise of replay, if it's clear and obvious that the call on the field is wrong, then you reverse it. If you have to sit there and look at it for a time period before you even shut it down and then look at it for up to four minutes total and then reverse it. I mean, I I wasn't in the booth going nuts, but I was in the booth upset because, you know, it just seems to me that. What we're doing is we're just re-officiating the play and we're looking to prove the officials wrong instead of looking at it and saying, if we can't see 100% that it's a clear and obvious mistake, we're not going to reverse it. And I, and that that bothered me in that game and it bothered me to where replay has gone um, back, I think, back to where it's become too technical. And to me, in that play since they had to look at it that long and I never saw anything that convinced me that the call of a completion was wrong. I think they should have stayed with it. And that's when I think that, you know, when replay interferes beyond where it should. Do you feel that we have, because everyone keeps bringing up what is a catch? What isn't a catch? Um, I think a lot of times on the playing field, it is not hard to tell what is a catch and what isn't a catch. But right. on the sideline, where we get into this idea of is he bobbling the ball? When did possession start? Those are impossible to tell what's going on. I couldn't agree more. I'm okay now. I think there was a good, you know, different two different types of plays that demonstrate the difficulty. There was the the Smith play going to the ground, and that's the one that's confusing now. Yes, because the, also the one with the tight end. When does he? Oh, he bobbled it. So now he had the the second foot. Now we did see that he got the foot down. It looked like the ball now is steady in his hands, and then he did get two feet down. But. When you have the sideline and they have whether or not the guy's bobbling the ball, those are so tough to tell. And then when you bring in, he's got to complete it through the ground play out of bounds. Those plays become impossible for us to tell what the heck's going on. Yeah, you know, and to me, the thing that was really clear is going to the ground is difficult when you're talking about the ball 
moving and that type of thing, I'm not clear any longer about going to the ground. You know, and then the guy the rolls over, Mike, reversed. and you can't see the ball anymore. So you I don't know, see the ball. You don't I see said, anything. Did he wow. roll over? Did the ball hit the ground? Did it not hit yeah. the ground? It's become impossible to tell. Mike, you know, you know, my favorite group of people, my favorite group of people are the 50 drunks in a bar. I go to them every time and they would look at that play and they would say, what'd they call it? They call it a catch. Well, it must be a catch. You can't overturn that. But you look at earlier in the game on the catch fumble that they ruled catch fumble on the field and it was picked up by the Chiefs and yes. run in for a touchdown. See, that, when you're on your feet, has become much clearer That is, That was automatically get... an incomplete pass. I said that a thousand times yeah. right away. Boom, that's incomplete. You said it right away. That's incomplete. Right. It's going to come back. It's incomplete. Those are easy. The ones right. on the sideline have become impossible. Plus, we lose sight of the football. You know, when we, they both, the two Devontae Smith ones, we didn't even know that it was an incomplete when, in, right. it, when, they, when they ruled the first one, right? Then we found out later in the game or after the game that it was an incomplete pass. And then right. the one Sunday, which they ruled the pass and then came back after all that time and ruled it incomplete. I still never saw anything that showed that it was an incomplete pass. Yeah, I know, and we're and, and and I'm in your court on this now, and we're taking away great catches based on something that's very, very technical. Is there and any way to? That's what I hate. Is there any way to clean up the sideline portion of that from from a standpoint well, of officiating? I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think you really can, Mike, except to go back to the basic premise now. We started replay in 1999, and we said indisputable visual evidence, and uh, and that was the only way you would overturn it. We changed the language. We wasn't me, but we changed the language um, a few years ago and said clear and obvious. The college rule book, in order to change it, it says it must be beyond a shadow of a doubt. So let's make it beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether it is on the sideline or whether it's in the field of play. Let's make it clear and obvious. Let's make sure that there's indisputable visual evidence that the call on the field was not right. I just think we have to go back to that standard. And I have talked to people like Rich McKay of the competition committee and and said that I am concerned on how we have gotten too technical. We've gone in swings, too technical, and then sometimes, you know, leaving things on the field that clearly should have been reversed. We've gone into these, you know, sways of being, you know, too technical and not too. It's just that we've got to be consistent, and in order to be consistent, you have got to not be technical. And, only and Mike, there's got to the be one rule too. Clear and obvious. There's got to be one rule. If New York can go and say, "Oh, we we overturned it," boom, start the next play with no discussion of any kind anywhere, or now we're going to take four minutes to look at the play and decipher it forty-two times. Hey, one rule. Either we have one way of doing it, and we do it, and we put a time limit on it. And if you don't have it in that time limit, back to the ball, back to the game. You don't get five minutes to look at it. Mike, my favorite. I mean, Mike Patrick. When we brought replay back in, I mean, we had you know we had quite the uh, booth. Mike Patrick, Paul McGuire, Joe Theismann, yep. and Mike Patrick said right away about instant replay. If you go under the hood, which we were going under the hood at that time to look at things, if you go under the hood 
and you look at it right off the bat and you see that the call is wrong, reverse it. If you have to sit there and run it back and forth and run it back and forth and put it in super slow motion, then don't change it. And I loved the way that he approached replay way back in 99. And I just want to get back there. I, I agree. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, who makes a lot of crazy statements, made an interesting one. He said the best officials are on TV now. That's one of our problems. Stop taking these guys out of the booth and putting them in TV places. Now, you guys, he's talking about you and Sterator and all these guys. Funny point. You guys have become TV stars. The other point is this. It seems now the NFL has got to do a better job of getting more talent and better people onto that field doing these jobs. These are demanding jobs. If that means more pay, it's more pay. The bottom line is this is a big part of an incredibly rich sport. You can't cut corners anywhere. And if these jobs become better jobs, good God bless the people who get them. But they need to get more qualified athletic people into those positions. I can't argue with you. I think there's two separate issues there. I think there's the people that are on the field um, and in this case have left the field to go into television jobs. And there are those that are off the field running the program that run from the program to get into these television jobs. So you're talking about Blandino and myself, who were the heads of officiating and then the other three that came off the field. Look, I think that the head of officiating, Mike, um, I think it's the second most important job in the league. I mean, I give Goodell number one, um, that his job is a tough job. But beyond that, you can take all your EVPs, you can take them all. And, you know, they're all, you know, looking about the not the future of the game, the financial future of the game. But the nuts and bolts, the integrity of the game lie with the head of officiating. And to me, that position just hasn't been appreciated as much as it should be appreciated. I agree. And, you know, I, I, agree. I think like it's Blank, an interesting you know, part, and it's the, it's, it is imperative that the game has good officiating. That's, and listen, we understand nobody's perfect. We understand that. And I'm not one who wants to see robots calling balls and strikes I'd rather right. have a guy have a la- I'd rather watch a guy have a lousy strike zone and live with it. Okay, now sometimes that can be a little overdone. We know that. I'm not going to mention any names. That we know that we can get a, a a big game where the ball and strikes are just insane. It happens. The bottom line though is there's a human element to all of sports. We understand that the players drop balls, they make mistakes. The uh, the officials make mistakes. You got to live with it. That's all. And nobody's asking anybody to be perfect. But you're asking them to be fair and you're asking them to be professional. That's all you can ask them to be. That is correct. I agree. And you got to, you know, listen, I mean, the the college, uh, you know, the Power Five conferences are producing better officials. And I do think, Mike, and, and this is my, my friends who are in fishing get mad at me, but this is the way that I do feel. I think that the officials themselves are good. And I think there may be better than they've been. If you want to take Roger Goodell's approach to say that, you know, officiating is better is better than it's ever been. I might agree with them when you look at the total roster, but the officiating, let's forget the officials, the officiating, I don't think is. I mean, I think it's gone backwards to a degree. I agree. And then the question becomes why? And then you have to look and say, has replay with this video assist with this expedited review with this communication system, with 
everybody in the officials' ears from New York to the replay booth in in, uh, the stadium site, has it gotten to the point where the responsibility to officiate the game has left the field and moved on into, um, you know, into the booth or into New York? And has it made officials on the field more reliant um, on those voices that are in their ear? And I, I look at the mess that was created in Kansas City, Cincinnati on the redo of the down, if you want to call it that. I mean, we're trying to do too much instead of using some damn common sense and only getting involved when we need to get involved when it comes to moving a ball a half a yard when it's third and nine. So you have to over, you have to rethink to me the overall philosophy of how you treat the game when you're moving the ball a half a yard or a yard or doing some things to me which have no impact in the game. And um, and that's kind of where I've seen it drift at this point. The other thing I would do, Mike, I don't know how you feel about this, is I would rather they elevate crews. And I would say this, if you have <laughs> and, and a good crew that's going to get a playoff game is going to have a good, solid, or a very good referee and a very good umpire. And what I would say is the NFL and the crew have the right to make two changes if they have a weak sister or a weak person on their staff. And then I would just elevate crews and we'd say, hey, if we want if the NFL wants to make a change, they're allowed beneath umpire. If they want to make a change, if the guy who's the referee wants to make a change beneath umpire, he can. And you should make two changes on a staff and then elevate the crews. Because I think crews with their coordination, that's lost in the postseason. I think that gets hurt. Well, you and I have talked about that before. I mean, I am a crew guy all the way. When I took over officially in 2001, I said, we're going to advance crews with a couple of changes. Like if it's a first year official or if maybe you haven't had enough number of games to qualify for the Super Bowl then you make the changes there. But otherwise, it's a crew concept. Again, I care about the best officiating, not the best officials. And that's done by a crew. So in 2001, we advanced crews. 2002, we advanced crews. 2003, we advanced crews. Interesting thing happened. One field judge got three games in a row, even though he wasn't the highest ranked field judge. And there was a group that didn't like that. And that would be called the officials. Um, they didn't like that their number one guy at a position didn't get the job. So they filed a grievance against the concept of advancing crews. And I lost. Um, that's, that, I lost. You know what? That, it, so that, it, it has to be the greater good. That's all there is to it. And I, I listen, agree. your crew is going to get weighted off your referee and your umpire. We all know that. It's just the bottom line. It just is. You know, I mean, we all know that. I mean, and that's where your coordination has to start. And and listen, they'll do a good job with the rest of the crew. I figure. I always think if your umpire and your and your and your referee know what they're doing, the rest of the crew is going to fall in line. And 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 the referee or umpire will tell you. Even the umpire will tell you. Hey, just you know, all you need is a good umpire, and then the other six guys can be anybody. Um, <laughs> but I I, I I do agree. The referee. Listen, the referee controls the perception of what people think about the, um, the, the, the crew. But, you know, it was interesting, even in the Super Bowl, you know, you're, they, they had Carl Cheffers when they introduced Carl Cheffers. We're in Glendale, Arizona, for God's sake. When they introduced Carl Cheffers for the coin toss, 
I think he got booed more than Dak Prescott. He got, got booed, booed because you know. he had a reputation throughout social media of being a flag official. And everyone said, oh, no, we're going to get a million flags because that's his M.O. And it didn't happen in the game. But because it wasn't fair. I mean, just because his crew threw the most flags doesn't mean that Carl Sheppers threw the most flags. And that's, you know, that's why teams had trouble. I'm sure the Eagles and the, you know, and the Chiefs had trouble scouting this crew because how do you do it? All the penalty totals are based on what the crew throws. And so all of a sudden you have these individuals that come in and now you can't track it. But uh, he was also because of the play, um, you know, with the Chiefs where they called roughing the passer on Jones. I think it was on the hit on Carr when the ball came loose. Um, it's just a, they're popular targets right now. But I, I was amused when um, I heard the crowd react in the Super Bowl, in the Super Bowl to the referee at the coin toss. Um, it was pretty amazing. Hey, only nine, only nine penalties for 47 yards accepted. That's a very low number. That's a very low number for yeah, a big game. Yeah, really. And yet, to, to me, not only that, it was the fact of the how many of them were the five-yard simple yep. fouls that are discipline fouls. I was surprised at that, you know, when I, when I, because I track everything when I'm at a dang game, you know, when I look at Kansas City, I mean, they were called for four, a two offside, one neutral zone infraction, and one false start. One was declined. And the Eagles had uh, a false start, an offside, a neutral zone infraction. That's pretty unusual when it comes to, um, playoff games with well-disciplined teams that uh, that you would have that amount and two, of and two-star quarterbacks, fouls. very few holding calls, and very few right. holding calls, and very few with with the biggest pass rush team. I think the field had something to do with that. But the, the uh, a seventy sack team, very few holding calls, and number right. and not one rough in the passer in the entire game, which is the play that drives fans crazy a lot of times because they think the star quarterback gets breathed on and he, and they get the penalty, but not one rough in the passer call in the whole game. Well, but I think we need to look back at the entire season. You know, we all talk about this, where we are with roughing the passer, with landing on top of him with most of all of your body weight. There's been a few of those that created the controversy, but look at the numbers. Um, I was startled by the numbers, the regular season numbers. In 2021, there were 153 roughing the passer calls made. In 2022, 93. 60 less over the course of the season. That's that's incredible to me. And it then is. Again, I didn't I realize that. Myself, that's a big number. Yeah, I always ask myself why. And, you know, and so then I think about the preseason training with officials and they talked about quarterback blows to the head. They said if it's matching hands, matching hands means that the defender is trying to reach and knock down the ball as it's being released out of the quarterback's hand. So his hand matching the quarterback's hand. If the follow-through makes contact with the helmet, don't call it unless it is forcible contact. You tell an official that, and I I get it. You tell the official in any circumstance not to call something, and that generally leads to an expansion even beyond what they don't want called. So I think this whole notion of overprotecting the quarterback has basically gone away except for that one, you know, that one part of it, which is that landing on top of him with most of your all body 
most or all their body weight in a normal tackle, in a normal tackling motion. But otherwise than that, I actually think they did a pretty good job of the quarterback calls, roughing the passer calls. And I, I didn't see one in my mind in the Super Bowl that, that even they should have considered even calling. I thought that part was very clean. Do you, what, what does the crew take any in, in, in closing this, does the crew, what's the crew feeling, especially in the Cincinnati Kansas city game where the play for all intents and purposes, moved a game header for overtime into a scoring situation and decided who went to the game. Does that do these? Does the crew feel that impact at the after the game? Are they are they going to go in and have a long discussion about that? Or are they just going to get dressed and go about their merry way? Well, I mean, they're going to get dressed and head out because there's nothing else they can do. I mean, they will be anxiously awaiting when the head of officiating comes into the locker room and says to them, Hey, good call. Clearly a foul. You got to make that call. Good. Go. Okay. That's all. You don't celebrate that. I mean, there's, there's nothing to celebrate. You don't see, uh, you know, players, I mean, officials, you know, doing dances um, after their calls, but they can leave, you know, feeling like gratified, I guess, that they made the call that was the right call. So when they leave uh, the building, they know most times whether it's good or bad, whether they were sure. on something or off something when they leave there. They pretty much know. If it's something like that, especially when it goes to a pool report, look, I mean, Carl Sheffers' pool report, I mean, he, he he described about the clean stretch, clear stretch of the jersey, all those things that he described. He didn't see it. I mean, he's not looking there. Right. That's the that's the last place that he's looking at. So he's already gotten from New York. Um, he's already gotten the explanation um, of what they saw and and how to describe it. You know, to the to the media by way of the pool report. You know, most pool reports this year have gone straight to New York. It's not the referees that are making the pool report, but in this case, um, in the Super Bowl, you know, New York wasn't in New York. New York was in Glendale and they have constant communication. And so they basically told him what to say. And uh, at that point, young John Jenkins, who, by the way, the official that made the call um, was probably the least experienced official on the field when it comes to postseason games. Um, And he's the one that I know you breathe a little bit easier when you got that word that it was a clear foul, it was the right call. And, and then the uh, player stands up it, at his locker and says, I fouled him. And you got to, you got to give Bradbury credit. I yeah, think no, that it was, was very honest of him. I mean, he said, he, said, he said, listen, I don't know if you call it there or not, but I fouled him. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's something else. And it kind of takes the firestorm and reduces it a little bit. And of course, you know, what always happens is we always think, okay, but then there was the fumble, there was the punt return. Did it all boil down to this one call? But, you know, when the call comes at the end of the game, it has a greater magnitude, uh, can have a greater magnitude on the outcome. And um, it's just the way it is. Mike, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Congratulations on a good season. We'll talk down the road. Thank you. You got it. Mike Pereira, Fox, the guy who does the best job on officiating in in the business, no question about it. And that's where the NFL stand is, and that's where the officials and their mindset is going forward as we put a lid on the 
season. Andy and the Chiefs have their second Super Bowl. Hey, the Eagles can hold their heads high. They come out of this with a young coach who's got a very good roster and has been to a Super Bowl and lost a great, really terrifically played Super Bowl. And his quarterback didn't play well. He played brilliantly. Let's be honest. Hurts came out of that elevated status out of that Super Bowl because that's as well as you can play the position and lose a Super Bowl. I mean, he had an insane game. I mean, when you throw for 307 yards, yes, you had one fumble that went for a touchdown, but you throw for 307 yards, then run for three touchdowns and a game-tying two-point conversion, I mean, and run for almost 70 yards or just about 70 yards, I mean, you can't have a better game than that. He accounted for 400 yards offense. He accounted for all those touchdowns. I mean, he had a he had a great, great football game and elevated his status. He's going to be a very rich man, and he is now ranked. And you even heard Andy Reid and Mahomes raving about Hurts after the game, about how brilliantly he had played, and he did. I mean, he played incredibly, incredibly well. And so they come out of this with a team that's going to be reckoned with. There's no question. That's a very, very good and deep roster. And they can hold their head high. They played a very good game. They lost a tough game. No question about it. And we can talk about things they should have done. Did Andy outfox their defense and their defensive coaches in the second half? Yes. Did Tony's punt return kill them? Yes. Did the turnover uh, that went for a touchdown hurt them? Yes. But they scored 35 points, and the only thing they would have loved to get the ball back and get one shot, they didn't get a chance to do that. That's what we lost with that penalty. We lost the drama of the last two minutes because how much did we want to see what the Eagles were going to do in response with a timeout and a minute and 35 or 40, whatever there was exactly on the clock. What were they going to do? Could they get three and send it to overtime? Could they get seven and run off the field triumphant? Hey, it was going to be that interesting to watch. And when you have a Super Bowl that ends 38-35, everybody got a good game. There were some things that have to be cleaned up, especially the field, which the NFL's got a year to figure out exactly what they did and we can live without Tacoma 31, that's for sure. Maybe, maybe it's going to be good for some putts. It sure wasn't good for football, whatever they came up with. It was an utter embarrassment. That has to change before they get to Vegas. Baseball will be up next on the podcast. Remember, we're a month away from the NCAA tournament. We'll be zooming towards that. And that will be, you know, three weeks of complete chaos right around the corner. Spring is right around the corner. Spring training is now underway and will be officially underway elsewhere and everywhere within the next couple of days. So baseball is back. The baseball podcast will be up next with Bobby Valentine tomorrow, the next day. So be looking for that. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan. And you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts.